Welcome to Bits About Books, the home for conversations with authors of breakthrough books on sales, marketing and business. Founders, entrepreneurs and individual professionals, we all need to keep track of ideas that are helping create our today and tomorrow. Bits About Books will strive to find those books and speak to their authors, go behind the scenes and understand what inspired the authors to write the books that they did and how they went about doing so. Through our conversations, we hope to gain insights that will help us to get the most out of our efforts. I'm your host Shubhanjan Sarkar, founder of Pitchlink, the next generation buyer-seller engagement platform where our mission is to make buying easy. Welcome to Bits About Books. Thank you for your time and for joining us in this session. I have a favor to ask. While you continue to listen to the podcast, please leave a comment or rating at iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I personally look at each comment and will give you a shout out to each of you in our following episodes. It means a lot to hear from you. Our guest today is Ramesh Dorairaj and we speak with him about his book, Games Customers Play. Customers were segmented based on volumes, A, B, C or strategic growth and decline customers, whatever different names they give it. It's basically three types or four types of customers, primarily based on volumes, current volumes and potential volumes. What I am trying to say is that uh, this model doesn't factor in some critical things. One, who are the customers who are helping you grow? Because it's not just for me to service the customer now. Can I service the customer of tomorrow? That is completely ignored because of this model. The second is that great people, great talent within your company tends to work for the good customers who push, you know, who push, but at the same time respect their talents. Attrition goes up, as you very clearly know, the bottom half of uh, uh, the projects are where maximum attrition happens. Why? Because people don't have that sort of relationship with the customer or with the end or whoever is consuming their services and they don't feel respected as well. Ramesh worked for 30 years in companies like TCS, Infosys, Wipro and Mindtree. While there, he led PNL, service delivery, practice units as well as quality function. He had a ringside view and participated in the growth of two companies, TCS and Infosys, from sub-5,000 employee stage to 30,000 plus employees, besides helping and watching Mindtree grow from 100 million to 400 million during his time there. The book Games Customers Play, published by Penguin, was rated by Amazon as one of the most memorable business books of the year. Ramesh now coaches sales and proposal teams to focus on the message throughout the sales life cycle. He writes for fun and is also into hiking, baking, scuba diving and wildlife photography. Now, on to this stimulating discussion on games customers play with Ramesh Durairaj. Ramesh, welcome to Bits About Books. I'm delighted to have you here on the session today. Uh, it has been a long time since I've been thinking of having you here and I don't know what took us so long, but I'm glad that you are finally here. Subhajit, absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you for inviting me on your podcast. You you have a interesting book. I mean, when I say interesting, because um, as you know from, uh, from what I do, 
uh, I am a, a sort of a, a guy who talks about the buyer being in control, right? And and yeah. and recognizing the fact and thereby changing uh, your approach to how you do this interaction and sales. And when you write a book, uh, games customers play. It looks like a very very provocative kind of kind of statement. So uh, let's start at the beginning, Ramesh. When did you think of writing this book? Uh, I think uh, the seeds of this book have been, uh, you know, uh, in germination for a very long time. Uh, right from the time when I used to go for these on-site uh, customer interactions and, so, you know, contract negotiations and stuff, uh, where I felt that we often used to leave a lot of money on the table because it was easy to do that, to get the deal and you know give up on very critical things like intellectual property you know people would have struggled for months to build a tool and then you give it away free uh, and stuff like that used to happen and you know studies high-end almost high-end consulting like portfolio analysis planning uh, for their uh, removing their technical debt a lot of these things we used to give away free just to get some business. And I think that is what was, you know, always in my mind. And as I write in the book also, uh, I think there was this visit by one bank where everything went so smoothly. You know, we we showed them uh, the, this was an infi, and we showed them the, the banyan tree, which was dying and Mr. Pai was really trying to revive it, uh, revive the tree as, you know, he said, this came with the original campus. And so there was a lot of emotional attachment. And we used to share that with this customer. And I remember, you know, taking them by the swimming pool, you know, there used to be this lovely three shell structure. Next to it is one very baby swimming pool and joking with the customers, you know, step into my office <laughs> and stuff like that. And they loved it. And they love the fact that we said, look, we've created a world-class place so that people know what is expected of them. And right after that, hardly three, four months after that, came another bank, again from the same place. And when we pointed to those trees that have been planted by the dignitaries, uh, I don't care that Tony Blair planted this tree. Why should I bother? Was the comment, was the mumbling that we could hear. And, you know, the manicured lawns, the buildings, the, the amphitheater. Oh, I guess we are paying for all this. You know, constant negative chatter that uh, kept coming back from them. The funny thing is, these guys are on the opposite sides of a street. I won't mention the town because then you will know what these uh, two uh, companies are. And there's a lot of interaction between these two people. In fact, all of them co congregate to the same uh, uh, pub in the evening and switch jobs. So why is it that one company took a very favorable impression and another a very unfavorable impression? And uh, then I was reading this book, uh, Daniel Goldman's book, 
called Social Intelligence. His book on emotional intelligence is far more famous, but Social Intelligence, I just picked it up and there was this little line and one end of it was you and at the other end of it was it. And uh, Goldman said that, look, people either treat you as a you or as an it. And when expectations have a you know, mismatch, that is when a lot of trouble comes up. So I said, hey, why not take this one line and take it in two axes and say how a buyer treats the seller and how the seller treats the buyer. So it becomes a four by four. So the, they become quadrants. And that is, that is how this whole thing started. But basically it was, uh, I think the roots of it was that A, we were leaving far too much money on the table. B, we were not able to calibrate our initial interactions with customers based on what they perceived or they wanted us to be, uh, which is the selling part of it. And see how these relationships develop and either become beneficial uh, to the company or are detrimental to the company. Uh, we were talking about Subrata, who has one, you know, endorsed the book. And Subrata keeps saying, you know, uh, your business is determined by the customers you choose. Your success in business uh, is based on how well you choose your customers. Uh, and I had a very real life experience of it when my friend joined a company which actually reduced their overall sales by overall revenue by 40% by firing a lot of customers to return to profitability. Uh, and we're talking in millions. Right, right. So, so, so Ramesh, I mean, I understand that this uh, book by Mr. Goldman, it triggered the thought process in you and, and you sort of tried to map your experience onto this this uh, perspective that the, yeah. the perspective that you got uh, what happened after that i mean obviously that's just the kernel of the thought and and you had to sort of expand that into uh, a fairly elaborate book uh, so obviously yeah. there was a process post that what just give us a glimpse of what that process was like yeah i, I actually got this uh, idea when it was well past bedtime and I was thinking about it. And as soon as I got the idea, I actually ran downstairs to this very room and started typing. I just wrote. Uh, and uh, probably the basic kernel of the book was already ready. Uh, by the time I finished, I think it was 4 a.m. or 4.30 a.m. So I would have probably written about 7,000, 8,000 words. Bad first draft, but the idea was there. And then I started building on it for some time. So I had written the introduction, uh, edited this, polished it a little bit. And then I lost the mojo. So I left it for two months. And then one fine day, I said, no, this is something I must share, uh, you know. 
And so I said, okay, uh, if I'm in Bangalore, working from home, I I was already a consultant by then. So my office uh, was at home. This is not going to happen. So I deliberately blocked out all my uh, engagements uh, and then went off to a friend's place in Brahmavar, which is on the coast somewhere near Udupi, and sat there for about 10, 11 days uh, from morning till night, just writing. Uh, get up at 6 and then start writing by 6.30 and just take breaks for coffee and food uh, and nothing till about 8, 8.30 in the evening. So just wrote and wrote. So I reasonably uh, good uh, 30, 35,000 words by then. And then I kind of submitted it to Penguin and they came back and said, fine, but we need 60,000 words. <laughs> so that's how it started. Right. So, so the, tell me a bit about the Penguin story. You mentioned somewhere in the book that Mr. Suta connected you to uh, the Absolutely. Penguin guy. So, so how did that go about? Okay. So what, what happened was that I, I wrote to Mr. Suta. In fact, as, as I was finishing my work, in uh, in Brahmavar, I sent a mail to him saying, can you write the foreword for this book? And can you hook me up? Because he had just published his book, uh, Via Penguin at that time. So can you introduce me? So he said, fine, and uh, send me the book. So I printed it out and left it at his house here. And after a while, he came back and said, no, you're, uh, you know, uh, I can't write the foreword for this book. It's nicely written, but I don't agree with the idea of buyer tyranny and seller tyranny and all of that. So I can't endorse the book. So I said, fine, but at least can you introduce me? Uh, and, he, and, you know, that's the greatness of that man. I mean, even though he disagreed with the entire premise of the book, he went ahead and introduced me uh, to Penguin. They reached out. I submitted uh, uh, a chapter and uh, uh, the introduction. And about 14 days, they came back, 14 or 21 days, they came back with a contract. So that is how the book was written. Wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> so, so when they came back, so to connect back to your previous point, when they came back and said, uh, you need to like literally double the word count. What, what was your go-to? I mean, what, what did you think? that Did you feel that there are el- things that you could elaborate which you hadn't? I think one of the things I, uh, at that point in time, if you had read the draft, it would have just been some of my personal experiences and some very popularly known uh, stories. Uh, beyond that, there wasn't much in the book. So, uh, and I also knew that I had to add stuff to it for it to become, because let's face it, uh, I have not been a CEO of a company, uh, you know, I, I'm not famous. Uh, nor do I have, nor did I have, nor do I have any fantastic reputation of being a thought leader. So, why would someone listen to me? Except for the fact that it's provocative, there was nothing there. 
Then I reached out to a friend and uh, who was doing his uh, PhD in, in uh, uh, IASC and said, look, I want to research on these things. Tell me how to go about it. So he called me over to his place once, took me to his lab and showed me how to do research, you know, <clears throat> how to search for topics, how to get that. And uh, based on that, I did have some, uh, you know, I do have some subscriptions. So based on that, and there are, there's a lot of stuff which is free with uh, JSTOR and uh, uh, ResearchGate. So based on his guidance, I kind of went through and started researching on this and really came across some wonderful principles, uh, particularly the anthropological studies, uh, you know, uh, of the Mose tribe and the and the gift exchange that happens in the Melanesian islands. Now, these were all things that uh, enriched me because of the research and also enriched the book. Uh, and that's probably why Subroto endorsed it, saying, look, it's, it's a very well-researched book. By the way, just to place on record, he also didn't agree with the premise of the book. He said, no, you can't write it this way. So <laughs> it can't be telling me. But surprisingly, uh, most people of our generation, my, my generation, you know, uh, who, are, who are probably the second generation of IT guys, most of them love the uh, love the phrase. So, so I think that's the generational difference that that, that you can see. But again, his it's his good nature that. Despite not agreeing with the nature of the book, at least he could give a very positive comment, which we could, and permitted me to put it uh, right there on the cover. So, so, Ramesh, before we actually get into the book now, tell me, what was the disagreement? What, what, what were their views where they said, look, we don't agree with the premise? I, I, I think it was about tyranny. They said, how can you say customer tyranny? You know, how can you say buyer tyranny? I mean... These are the guys who are putting food on the table. How can you say tyranny? So I, I think that was uh, so it was fairly fundamental. Right. I can't argue with that. <laughs> right. So so let's get into the book now. Uh, you you do agree that a new model is required. Yeah. And and you may be coming to, at it from a different angle, uh, from the fact that actually the buying process control has sort of shifted from the seller to the buyer over the last 10-15 years because of information asymmetry that's gone. In fact, it is like turn 180 degrees, the buyer is far more informed, so on and so forth. All of us read Gartner reports. We, we are all aware of this, right? Uh, there's yeah. no denying of the fact that the buyer is in control of the process. So what what sort of prompted you to say that there is a new model that is required for a value exchange, which is what sales is, right? So we, we, we provide some value as sellers, you get value as buyers, then you give us money, which is what we get, and so on and so forth. So what is this new model and why do we need it? Okay. Uh, if you really go back, at least in my experience, uh, customers were segmented based on volumes, right? And a, B, C, or strategic growth, 
and uh, decline customers, whatever different names they give it. It's basically three types or four types of customers. And primarily based on volumes, current volumes and potential volumes. What I am trying to say is that uh, this model doesn't factor in some critical things. One, who are the customers who are helping you grow? That, that's the first question. Because it's not just for me to service the customer now. Can I service the customer of tomorrow? And which customers of mine are helping me do that? That is completely ignored because of this model, the, the current models. The second is that great people, great talent within your company tends to work for the good customers who push, you know, who push, but at the same time respect their talents. Attrition goes up, as you very clearly know, the bottom half of uh, uh, the projects are where maximum attrition happens. Bottom half, I mean, is, uh, you know, work which is more industrialized, more by rote, which can probably be automated, but still is not automated because the costs don't justify it as of yet. So that is where you ex experience most attrition also. Why? Because people don't have that sort of relationship with the customer or with the end or whoever is consuming their services and they don't feel respected as well. Why? Because they are in a buyer tyranny kind of an engagement. So how do you change that? So that's the second point. Now, and the third is that if you really look at companies which have gone down, I mean, uh, and uh, not to belabor the joke, uh, you can list the companies uh, written uh, written up in uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins. <laughs> to see them, all nearly all of them slipped into the bioterrainy quadrant, and that is when they went out of business. They tried to get out of it in different ways, acquiring things, investing in bad projects, trying multiple things, pushing at growth, but eventually failing because they did not move from the quadrant they were pushed into. So these, I think, are the three reasons why a new model is needed. What, what according to you, is the new model? The new model is... One of the aspects of it, I'm not saying that this is the entire end-all and be-all of it, but one of the ways you look at uh, your uh, relationship with your customers is via this lens of these four quadrants. And as I keep saying, these four quadrants are transactional quadrant and the personal quadrant, which are reciprocal in nature, and the buyer tyranny quadrant and the seller tyranny quadrant. Now, seller tyranny, you and I probably know how even the BSNL linesmen had to be treated like royalty at one point in time so that your telephone works. That's or you had to wait for six months and pay with Forex to get a Lambretta scooter. So that's seller tyranny. Uh, where, and thankfully, not much of it is there now, except in a few cases. 
Bio tyranny is something that we all have faced. I mean, I, I, I still remember uh, just one year after winning a major contract, uh, five year contract, they promised five years managed services contract. And because of five years, we gave them a discount. And obviously, because of the discount, there was a uh, there was a penalty clause for uh, uh, foreclosing for convenience. Now, one year into the agreement, we get a letter from them saying that we want to foreclose this, and we are throwing open the entire portfolio back to a bunch of service providers for rebuild. If you want to be part of the rebuild, uh, please indicate your accept acceptance to foregoing the penalty clause. Now, the value at stake was probably up north, north of 100 million. So which CEO will say, no, uh, we will not. Uh, and we will, so all of them, uh, you know, kind of forfeited their uh, no you know, foreclosure bonus, a foreclosure penalty. But uh, was it a pleasant way of doing things, business? And isn't that tyranny? When you because of the volumes, you can dictate so much. I mean, this is excess of power that goes on to one side of the table. Sure, sure. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah I mean, if 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 basically people go back on what they have agreed and uh, use a leverage, then then there is a. I mean, there is anyway ethical problem whether you at all want to compete there or not. I mean, I understand the size of the size of the web, yeah, you know the contract it's too large as you said it's a upwards of uh, 100 million dollars not a small thing uh, uh, it managed services company has okay i don't need the 100 million dollars but but having said that uh, this is a this is where possibly what shubhrata told you comes into play you need to choose whether you you want to be with this kind of a customer or not but i, I think once you have a run rate of already a run rate of 100 million uh, how can you say, I mean, which CEO has the guts to go to his board and say, we're going to say no? I agree. I agree with you. I agree with you. So, the, the, and so, you know, the, the morals and ethics and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And, yeah. And this is acceptable behavior because they're giving you a choice. They're saying, yeah, no, we will we'll, we'll give you your bonus, your penalty if you want. But then you can't do business with us. Yeah, that's a choice. That's, that's a choice, choice you have to. And it's a tough Always. choice. Yes. I mean, no two is about it. So ethics is okay. I mean, I mean, legally they are entitled to do that. And so those are the four quadrants that we talk about. Uh, and transactional quadrant is probably the most uh, used quadrant. Do you know the name of the bus conductor who gives you tickets, or the or, or the person at the uh, at the theater who gives you tickets. I mean, millions of everyday transactions, most of them, you don't know the person. And the person doesn't have to know you. That It's the transaction that happens. So this is what we call as uh, market pricing in anthropological terms. The social interaction between the two of you is what is called you know, market pricing. 
uh, and that falls under the transactional quadrant so so, so uh, most of our most of our uh, engagement is transactional is what you're saying absolutely but the critical ones are personal it's time for a short break stay with us after the break I think that's the pinnacle and it's not that what I recommend is that it's not that you have to move you know lock stock and barrel to that quadrant uh, you know you, you can't do that it's it's very, very difficult but at least a certain portion of it the critical parts of it you can move it in such a way that you still continue to have a lot of it in the transactional quadrant but you also have a personal element for example i think some of the banks have done this well with the private wealth management uh, relationship managers that they have uh, uh, at the same time you know you want to pick up cash you go to an atm you are listening to a business podcast network original podcasting is the fastest growing content marketing opportunity which is untapped we can help you craft your audio strategy and help leverage the wide reach and easy streaming capability that the smartphone penetration provides it is easy it is powerful and personal talk to us to find out how podcasting can help you build your brand and reach out to your targets like never before write to us at bpn@bizcast.in that is bpn@bizcast.in business podcast network podcasts end to end Welcome back. I'm Shubhanjan Sarkar, your host for Bits About Books and founder of Pitchlink, the buyer-seller engagement platform. Let's dive right back into the episode where we left it. Yeah, and and sort of it's sort of sort of like a continuum, right? So when transactional yeah. becomes personal, uh, yes, and how you can keep it there. Uh, yes, I, I think a lot of it, uh, like, like you said, I mean, and the moral and the ethics bit of it uh, gets sort of entwined, I guess. Uh, in that in Absolutely. that continuum yes uh, in, in fact uh, because the, the transaction was in the uh, the this case that i was talking about because i think the relationship was anyway either in the transactional quadrant and or in the buyer terrain quadrant there was very little expectations in that quadrant uh, that they should behave that way whereas if it was a relationship in the personal quadrant, I mean, that's what I keep asking. Will this client do the same to a McKinsey? They won't. Or will you go to your doctor and say that, look, uh, you know, uh, I found some three other doctors who are cheaper. So unless you reduce your rate, I'm not going to come to you. We'll never do that, especially to a doctor who's in charge of certain critical aspects of your health. so that's the difference between these quadrants so so you you are suggesting that you can move from the transana- transactional to the personal quadrant where intrinsically you you are valued absolutely i i think that's the pinnacle and it's not that what i recommend is that it's not that you have to move you know lock stock and barrel to that quadrant uh, you know you, you can't do that it's it's very very difficult but at least a certain portion of it the critical parts of it you can move it in such a way that you still continue to have a lot of it in the transactional quadrant but you also have a personal element for example i think some of the banks have done this well with the 
the private wealth management uh, relationship managers that they have. Uh, uh, at the same time, you know, you want to pick up cash, you go to an ATM, or you do most of your transfer cash, you do it via an online transfer. You don't call your private wealth management. But at the same time, a relationship exists, which makes it difficult for you to switch from one bank to another because you know this person, they they know you, they know your portfolio, your preferences, everything. And uh, even if they change people, uh, at least some aspects of the relationship gets handed over and things go on. So can you do something like that? And in IT, I say, can you introduce, extend yourself upwards to do projects which are more in the personal quadrant, which I think in very simple terms is uh, not just the know-how, but the know-why, uh, you know, and you create the opportunity itself uh, by being a thought leader, by, by coming with a consultative mindset and unearthing opportunities, you know, under-addressed areas, uh, which is what uh, a lot of sales techniques also teach you. So, it, so it's, it, it's the same, but of course, uh, after that, following through with that. What is the percentage of of transactions or or deals would you say sort of get impacted by the buyer tyranny? I would say that, see, you really look at the services mix of many, and I'm talking about IT companies here, IT services companies. You look at the services mix of these companies. Thankfully, with the advent of digital, probably the share of, say, personal quadrant revenues has gone up somewhat. But you really look at it, a lot of it, most of it is managed services, infrastructure services, and testing, testing automation, uh, and all of that. So which, which you... I mean, the, the very nature of the service is so commoditized that it either has to be transactional or in the bioterrain. And uh, given the competition, given the uh, dynamics, a lot of the customers have uh, learned how to, you know, kind of leverage this uh, to, as I cited in that example, to a very large extent, uh, towards buyer tyranny. So from a percentage, I, I won't be able to put a specific percentage on it, but I would say that uh, a vast majority, uh, more than uh, you know, what we call in parliamentary languages, uh, absolute majority is, is the transactional and the buyer tyranny quadrants. And less than, a, um, a, you know, a, a small minority, I would say, is probably in the personal quadrant. So, as I'm listening to you, I'm I'm sort of thinking that possibly it, this is more prevalent when you are not selling anything unique. If you're in a commodities business, absolutely. So, so where you can be squeezed, and because because you know that if I don't do it, there is somebody else sitting there willing to do it, and yeah. uh, and it's a chick call I have to take whether I let go of this 10, 20, 50 million dollars because there is nothing I bring to the table which is unique. However, uh, I've cited the example of the Swiss watch industry 
which almost got wiped out because of the cheap Japanese sports watches which were coming out. But they recovered so beautifully, all because of one man, that uh, they were able to get back their branding, get back. I mean, as an example, I, I think the value of the Quartz watches at that time, uh, because of the Japanese invasion, was about not invasion, Japanese influx into that market was probably about $50 a watch. Whereas these guys were able to finally sell at $500 a watch. Uh, they, they, they got back the way they do it, despite the fact that they were selling a watch. So it's, it's all about how you can build up an impression, build up an ecosystem that delivers value to the customer, that delivers perceived value. Uh, in this case, it's perceived value because a watch is a watch is a watch. <laughs> but, uh, but the fact that they did it, of course, now again they're going into, after I've written the book, uh, Apple came up with this iWatch, which is again disrupting them. I do not know how they're going to come back from that. Yeah, I think I think a part of that shift. I mean, you please you you know this better than me. But part of the shift is because they moved from being a watch, which means a dispenser of time, to more a uh, accessory, a fashion accessory, a style statement, a generational gift to be passed on to children heirloom. I mean, uh, a Patek Philip. Uh, uh, increases in value as it gets older. It's almost like the antiques, which is like, uh, you know, for a watch, it, uh, I couldn't get my head around it. But that's the perception. That's the thing that they've been able to do in that industry. And it's it, and given the kind of things, uh, services that we are into, I think there is tremendous opportunity. I mean, if a watch conglomerate can do it, we should be able to do it much better, which is why this, uh, you know, this, this book kind of addresses how you can go about doing it in some ways. Yeah, uh, so I would like you to maybe sort of give an outline as to how it can be done. And before that, I just want to touch upon one point that a lot of uh, what happened with the watch i mean apart from sort of repositioning it from a uh, from a dispenser of time to uh, to to a accessory uh, it also it it also saw to my mind the classical use of marketing as against yeah. sales so i think that also yeah. took center stage right what would you say? So, so in this change scenario, how do you, especially if you, I mean, look, most of us are selling commodities. Yes, let's, let's make no mistake, right? Uh, most of us are not selling anything unique that we can dictate to the market. This is how you buy it. Either you take it or you go kind of stuff, right? In a scenario like that, how do you sort of help the customer be in this transactional to personal access and yeah. not sort of fall back into the yeah. tyranny quadrant. Absolutely. So uh, I, I think I've uh, given the example of the IKEA effect. 
So, I mean, IKEA sells furniture. And the, the biggest USP is that they make the user assemble the furniture. And it gives them a sense of accomplishment. And that in itself helps the customer feel closer to IKEA. So that's, that's one way of doing it. And uh, establishing certain amount of interdependencies between the work you do and the work the customer has to do to create something. Uh, more of co-creation rather than, you know, here's it, buy it, use it, we'll come if there's a problem to fix it. Instead of that, a lot more of uh, interdependencies in the way we supply things and the way we service them and the way the customer provides inputs. So a collaborative way of working. So that, I think, is one of the fundamental ways in which you can try and move uh, from the transactional to the personal world. So the second thing you can do is to create an ecosystem. Songs. They were just, it's just songs. I mean, you hear them on the radio, you can buy a CD and hear them, you can download an MP3 and hear them. But Apple iTunes created a whole ecosystem around it. Uh, so, and Spotify again has created a wonderful ecosystem around it with recommendation engines and logic and stuff like that to make sure that you keep hearing from Spotify. So, creating an ecosystem. Can you create an ecosystem around your product? Salesforce.com has done it very well uh, with their, uh, you know, not just the a core CRM product, but the fact that they've accepted other applications into their force.com uh, ecosystem. So that's one way of doing it. The second thing is obviously customization. Another way of doing uh, Asian paints. Paints. What can be more commoditized than paints? But they have, they bring in people to and you can choose the color and you go and get that color ready mixed from a, from a machine which, which you know, spews out a liter or two liters of that quantity. They are moving away from the transaction. I won't say they're in the personal quadrant yet, but definitely the kind of the painter that you use, the kind of people that you will interact with, the contractor you will interact with will be the, the relationship you will have will be closer to the personal quadrant rather than to the transaction quadrant. So these are some of the ways. Uh, there are a few ways that I've kind of written uh, in the book. You know, I speak to a lot of authors who are writing similar books, right? I mean, in the space of, the, I mean, people have their angles and they write about it. And what I see is the examples that we use a big chunk of that, not everything, but a big chunk of that actually come from the B2C space. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, if you think of In Search of Excellence or even you think of Good to Great, these are books which are, I mean, irrespective of the fact that these Good to Great companies have now fallen by the wayside, same with In Search of Excellence, those 50 companies, you'll not find many of them around and so on. Uh, they were focused on corporates, right? Yeah. And we are not seeing enough sharing of 
corporate stories yeah and and i think uh, that's something which i find as a as a gap and and a complex i mean by no means your book is simple by the way okay i think you are attacking a very complex idea absolutely and i've just i've just chewed a little bit of it exactly exactly yeah. and 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 this i'm telling because i think uh, when i mean obviously there's a deluge of content today right so you have webinars you have i mean white papers you have, there, there's no lack of content including the amount of stuff gets thrown at you at linkedin every day right but if you really look close and this is my like back of the envelope estimate 80% of the examples are either personal as in personal as in me my family my whatever yeah. or b2c yeah while we are all talking about the b2b space i think this is something we need to sort of figure out a way to address because and and when i say that what i mean is that you have done hundreds of deals in your lifetime right you you have literally done hundreds of millions of dollars of business and i see this opportunity where you can possibly bring in a lot more of those stories i mean i don't know how to do it i'm sure there'll be some limitations in terms of uh, you know confidentiality and there could be uh, i i do understand that uh, that piece i do get but however i think uh, uh somebody like you who has taken the trouble of doing this when you start chewing the next part of it yeah my my humble request is that bring in a lot more of your corporate stories uh, this is not an advice this is a request i mean i'm not i'm not advising yeah. you, you have written the book you know what you set out to do so yeah. uh, my and and it's a generic sort of i i i i feel that that's that's where uh, i think uh, documentation is getting possibly missed out the opportunity to learn i guess yeah. in some form is getting missed out um to to wrap up let's let's go to your last chapter uh <laughs> yeah uh, uh, you have covered you have covered uh, a bunch of those uh, how to sell in this <coughs> quadrants but i would like to connect it back to a chapter you wrote earlier and sort of i request you to connect these two ideas back and forth and 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 elaborate a bit uh, what customers want and how to sell in this quadrants how, how how would you sort of connect these two thoughts yeah so okay great question fantastic so customers expectations differ in different quadrants and they are by the very nature of the services or the markets uh, you know prefer to operate in a particular quadrant i mean you don't want uh, you know to for somebody who selling you a movie ticket to know your entire history neither do you want to spend the effort of knowing that history before he gives you the ticket so that the nature of the transaction itself establishes the relationships so customers in the transactional quadrant want least personal interaction frictionless buying uh, which i think one click buying and that amazon has done those are all brilliant ways in which because 
as a customer i don't need any personal advice to buy a book uh, from the buyer from the from this from the bookstore i get the advice from somebody else and then i go out of the book uh, any a lot of the commodities that we buy from amazon we just wanted one click and done so frictionless and so when you're selling to a customer in that quadrant you need to be emphasizing the frictionless nature apart from the advantages of buying from you in a very uh, what do you call it non intrusive manner uh and where uh, i think even the ads need to be focused more any marketing needs to be focused on the ease of purchase the ease of use and the ease of fixing things if things go wrong uh those are the three things that you need to be emphasizing in the transactional quadrant and also in the bioterrini quadrant bioterrini quadrant of course you need to also be a far more customer focused you need to be figuring out the customer needs to be treated like a person whereas they'll treat you like an object but you need to be figuring out what they need why do they need it uh, how do they need it and make it very specific to their requirements uh, uh, while again emphasizing ease of use you know ease of fixing and ease of uh, ease of buying so that's the difference that we see between the quadrants personal quadrant is complete collaboration collaborative sale it's about understanding what they're doing verifying it at each step of the way having verifiable outcomes uh, as we call it saying okay if we do this this is the kind of problem that is being solved and this problem being solved will cost you this much but will give you this much of returns so uh, uh, and going along the way confirming things establishing the business case in a very very particular way and very specific and uh, you know having a near trusted advisor position with a lot of people in the buying as you know any b2b sale probably will touch at least 10 stakeholders the buying or, committee or whatever you call it if you if you're lucky if you're unlucky it's 50 so but how many of them will you uh, will you have at least if not an acknowledged trusted advisor position at least uh, somewhere close to that saying okay this guy knows his stuff yeah, they can do what they say so that kind of a reputation and things like that and business case and, uh, and collaborative sales what is there seller directly you don't have to sell they'll come and buy so you don't have to worry but customers don't want to be will move away from you the minute they have an alternate even if even if it is more expensive if they get a better service they'll move immediately which is why a lot of us moved to mobile phones even when they were expensive because asnl was atrocious half the time it won't work true so, true i agree bits about books is brought to you by pitchlink the buyer seller engagement platform pitchlink makes buying easy by enabling high quality engagement between buyers and sellers through its presentation and discussion modules 
Sellers create customized sales narratives using sales collaterals and personal videos and reach out to prospects through a non-intrusive, buyer-qualified engagement. PitchLink requires no installation or download and holds the entire repository of sales collaterals and buyer-seller conversations. Talk to us to know more about how you can engage with customers without intuition. Call us on 99021-631-32. Ramesh, this has been a great chat. And, uh, and see, this is the thing. Every time I have a chat like this, I feel how inadequate the time is. <laughs> because, I mean, literally, I have another 20 questions which I can ask. But, uh, but this is for the readers to get a view of what you did and how you did it and why you did it and so on. Uh, I hope that they will get a better understanding of what sort of made you write this book. But I think the, the ideas here are uh, universally important. Right, Ramesh, thank you so much for joining me and joining us at uh, Bits About Books. And I'm delighted that we had this conversation and I look forward to the next one. Hey, thanks a lot, Subhanjan. It was a brilliant conversation. Thank you very much. We have a fantastic lineup over the next couple of episodes with great conversations on breakthrough books. Subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you do not miss a single episode. Thanks for listening. Thank you for being with us today on Bits About Books, where we talk to authors about breakthrough books on sales, marketing and business. We hope this conversation helped inform and motivate as we all navigate a rapidly changing business environment. For us, these are enlightening conversations enriched with knowledge and expertise. We encourage you to go out and buy the book to learn firsthand and implement some of the great ideas we discussed today. We hope to have you with us again in the next exciting episode of Bits About Books. If you liked what you heard, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast platforms like iTunes, Google Play, Spotify or wherever else you get your podcast from and give us a rating while you are at it. This BizCast original podcast is produced for PitchLink, the next generation buyer-seller engagement platform, where the mission is to make buying easy. Hosted by Subhanjan Sarkar and produced by Rajiv Aditya. See you next time and have a wonderful day.